Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, October the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. My guest today is someone who I actually know pretty well, as he is the books editor of the Irish Times, and we've worked pretty closely, and I hope productively together during my time as arts and culture editor. Martin Doyle, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Hugh. Am I right about the productive thing? As productive as a cough, Hugh. Thanks very much. You get a sense of Martin's dry sense of humour there. Uh, we are actually here not to talk about your day job. You're here to talk about your, your new book, Dirty Linen, which is officially published today. It's going to be launched later this evening. It might be good if you told us who you are, where you come from and what has brought you here. I sound a bit like that Kevin McAleer <laughs> joke about being stopped by the British uh, the British soldiers late at night. But I think it's particularly relevant to the book and the story that you tell. Okay, so um, I was born in Bambridge, County Down, and grew up in a small village nearby called Lawrencetown, which is in the parish of Tullalish. So Lawrencetown, Guildford, Ballydugan, Bleary, Donaclony would be the, the villages in in the parish, none of them greater than a thousand people. And um, if people are sort of trying to place that, what part of County Down is that? Sure. So it's kind of west County Down, which isn't very, it's, it's very close to, to the border. So Tullalish lies between the towns of Banbridge, Portadown and Lurgan. Mm. So it's kind of where, where County Down shades into County Armagh, a few miles south of Loch Ney. Mm. So it's a kind of, it, it, it's one of those Parts of the north, it seems to me, as somebody who doesn't come from there, you know, I'm familiar with, you know, the Morns and Belfast. I'm familiar with the area around uh, Derry. I'm kind of familiar with Tyrone and Oma. But there are these kind of nebulous areas, mm-hmm. particularly around one side or the other of Loch Ney, that are kind of less geographically defined. Yeah, it's funny because it's actually, it features quite prominently in two triangles, uh, the Linen Triangle and the Murder Triangle. So the Murder Triangle people might be maybe more familiar with. Um, that was a term brought up by Father Dennis Fall and Father Raymond Murray. Um, it stretched from roughly Lurgan or Portadown across to Dungannon and south to Newry. And this is an area in which the Glenan Gang, which was loyalist paramilitaries who worked side by side with many renegade members of the security forces. One of the leaders was Robin Jackson, known as the Jackal, who has lived in Donaclony. He is originally from Donachmore between Newry and Banbridge, and he's reliably linked to over 50 murders, like he was one of the greatest serial killers of the Troubles, um, responsible for the Dublin Monaghan bombings, the Mammy Showban massacre, the O'Dowd's murders in my parish, and the Bleary Darts Club possibly the Kearns brothers in my parish as well. His first murder was a man called Pat Campbell, who was a Catholic shop steward in Down Shoes, the shoe factory in Bambridge, the lowest, largest local employer. So that was one aspect. And then the linen triangle stretched roughly from Lisburn, south of Belfast, across the bottom of Loch Ney, as far as Dungannon again, and down to Newry. And it was really the heartland of 
Ulster's industrial uh, wealth. Um, like people think of Harlan and Wolf shipbuilding, etc. But linen came well before that. Linen was massive. And if you think about it, like linen was both agricultural and industrial. Farmers throughout the north grew the flax, which was then steeped in in rivers and flax holes to break down the fibres. And then farmers, weavers, spinners, they were doing it in their own home up until the industry became industrialised and they used the the, the water power of the River Ban, they created Ban Reservoir Company to kind of increase the flow of water. From and this is from what, the, the 18th century onwards, yeah, up, late, until, late, up until the, late, you know, late, well yeah. after the Second World War? Late 1700s and mm. went into a bit of a decline, had a boost during wartime when they needed linen fabric for airplane wings and so forth, pretty much went into decline after the, the Second World War when synthetic fibres and, and cheaper imports from from abroad. Um, and so it's a kind of, it's it. an early industry. It's almost a kind of pre-industrial revolution That's kind of industry, which is then, which is then industrialised. But it's really, it's the starting point of one part of Northern Ireland's history, which is as the, as the industrial powerhouse of the island. Exactly. So, you know, you had basically, I think there were a lot of Huguenots came over and Quakers, like in, in my area, and there were a lot of Quakers were some of the early adapters and they, started um, producing vitriol, which is like a kind of an, an early industrial bleach. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of used uh, the metaphor of the linen industry. It kind of runs like a, a thread through the book, if you like. So the vitriol, for example, used to kind of bleach the the, the linen fabric from a, a natural brown colour to more like a white, pure colour, if you like. And then I sort of compared that to, you know, the vitriol of, say, somebody like the Reverend Ian Paisley, who sort of poisoned the waters, if you like, of the North with his sectarianism. Yeah, which, I actually want to come, ba- come back sure. to Ian Paisley before mm-hmm. we do that. I mean, it just just to kind of set the scene of, of this area and what it's like, it's also a, it's a sort of a, it's an area where two communities rub up against each other. Uh, you're from a Catholic background. It's it's majority Protestant. Mm-hmm. The history of the place, as as in so many parts of Ireland, is is written in the names and the changing names of the townlands and the villages. And you can kind of you can you can read a huge amount uh, into that. There's it, the his, history goes back, or the myth making goes back, maybe to the 1640s, maybe as a kind of a starting point for you. I think here, isn't it? Yes. Like so. Okay. The River Ban um, is is frequently used as a kind of a fault line in the north. You've got east of the ban, west of the ban. So west of the ban, predominantly Catholic, more rural. Uh, east of the ban, more Protestant, more industrial. So I lived on the banks of the ban and therefore that was like a kind of, a, um, I wouldn't say an interface area because people live side by side largely. It's more mingled than an yeah, interface. Absolutely, isn't it? yes. Yeah. Um, people, you know, lived and worked side by side. Like Banbridge be a relatively you know, peaceful town in in northern terms and, you know, there weren't sort of separate housing estates for Catholics and Protestants. Lurgan, um, on the other side of the parish, um, would be more divided 50-50 and literally, you know, a Catholic end of town, a Protestant end of town. Portadown, of course, is notorious as a very divided town with Drum- the Drumcree protest, um, most notoriously perhaps. But absolutely, um, the the conflict has deep roots and like Portadown was the site of um, a notorious massacre of about 100 Protestants in 1641 where, you know, you had a backlash basically against uh, the plantation, the, you know, confiscation 
exploitation of of Catholic lands or whatever. Um, local Catholic gentry rose up, and there were some terrible atrocities. And um, the book opens, my book opens, with a prologue about a massacre of Protestants who were sort of being driven from part of Armagh to Clandyboy in North Down near Belfast. Um, it's alleged that eighty. Mm. Protestants were were forced to their deaths in Kernan Lock, which is a lake in in my parish. I grew up, you know, going to Kernan Lock to kind of feed the swans, to have picnics, whatever. So I was shocked when I kind of read a local history and discovered this terrible, you know, stain on its past, if you like. And yet, when a classmate lent me a book written by a historian who had started his career as a teacher in my primary school a man called Fitzpatrick and his book was called The Bloody Bridge and when he you know relates what happened the murder or whatever where he's sort of talking about you know Protestants being drowned in the lake some early reader had sort of underlined it and in beautiful calligraphy had written the more the merrier feel him you know I've pray an Ave Maria that your soul will be resting in heaven but I'm sure it will for such a chivalrous act and so I kind of thought my God this is somebody in the early years of the 20th century and you know a neighbour of mine or the probably the father of a neighbour of mine um, celebrating this so, murder. So this is part of the nub of the book it seems to me is these dark atavistic feelings travelling down through the generations and the idea of maybe of inherited trauma as well as of of inherited hatred and I mean you grew up what in the or you you were born what in the, the mid 1960s or thereabouts so by the right through your childhood would have been exactly when when mm-hmm. this conflict if you can call it that this nightmarish situation was was at its peak the book is very much victim focused so um the first piece that i that i wrote was the the story of the o'died murders in my parish barney o'died was my milkman he was shot and seriously injured in his farmhouse two of his sons barry and declan i think 18 and 22 years old uh, were murdered and his brother joe I mentioned that in passing in an essay that I wrote called Dirty Linen, which was published in the Irish Times. His son, Barney's son, Noel, got in touch, invited me to meet Barney. The full family had moved south after the murders for fear that the rest of the family would be targeted. And I never saw him again for 45 years. That piece appeared in the Irish Times. Noel got in touch and said, Barney is still alive. He's 98 years old, still sharp. You know, would you like to meet him? And of course, I jumped at the chance and it was fascinating to talk to him and his family and to learn in detail the story of what happened to them. But the thing that got me was the fact that when Kathleen, the mother of the boys, died, the rest of the family decided that they wanted to bury their brothers alongside their mother. And so they made the decision that they would exhume the bodies of their brothers and rebury them. Mm. And the bit that got me, the bit that to me speaks of trauma, the long tail of troubles trauma, as I describe it, is they did it themselves. Like to me, that's like something out of a Greek tragedy that, you know, people you know, would feel so strongly or whatever that they would... Physically dig up the body themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote that story and at the end of that story, I did two timelines. One timeline was everyone else that was murdered with those the weapons that murdered my neighbours, the O'Dowds. And that's the story of the Glenan gang, this gang of loyalist paramilitaries colluding with uh, renegade members of the security forces. The other timeline was everyone that was killed in my parish during the Troubles more than 20, starting with three British soldiers in the abandoned house of a man who had been interned. 
and going all the way up until the Kearns brothers in 1993 murdered about 300 yards from where the O'Dowds were murdered. Two young boys, again, Jared and Rory Kearns, um, murdered on the day of their sister's 11th birthday party. An hour later, um, two gunmen walked into the through the back door and sort of signalled to Roisin to be quiet and then walked into the living room and shot two young boys dead. Um, there, incredibly is, there, traumatic. There, is, there is a danger with I mean, these stories are very evocatively told. I'm going to go through a couple of them in a minute, but that the reiteration of, of this horror and tragedy, name after name after name, uh, that, that it kind of dulls the senses in some yeah. way. And one of the things that I think is the power of the book is it's so much in the words of the people who experience it that it, it, it brings back the people themselves and it brings back these awful experiences. I mean, the, the one you mentioned there, the two, the two boys, when I was reading the book, because it, it occurs quite early in the book in terms of your, your telling of it, you see the photograph of them and you think that could be any two young fellas. In fact, it, it's quite reminiscent, younger, just to make, just to help younger listeners understand it, it's quite reminiscent of some of the pictures we've seen recently of young people who got killed in car crashes or things like that. Except you add to that the horror of what, just a, a shortly after that photograph was taken, where they're all laughing in the kitchen together, mm-hmm. these fellas come through the door with guns. I think the thing is, by by homing in on one small parish, I think everybody listening to this understands what a parish represents, a few square kilometres, generally sparsely populated. And then by spending time with those stories and telling not just the story of what happened, but the story of the before times and the after times. In other words, you know, painting um, a, a proper picture, a detailed picture of who these people were you know, how they lived, not just how they died. And then going on and talking to their families, their friends about how they cope, how they, you know, remember their loved ones and how they keep it together. And Um, what's your, I don't want to overgeneralise, but what's your sense? I mean, do you have a sense of a place that's still living with trauma or hasn't come to terms with, with, with these things? Or what kind of state is that parish in now? I think, well, if you take, for example, well, on the one hand, you know, one of the, you know, the people I write about is Jimmy Feeney. And Jimmy witnessed his father's murder two days. Jimmy won the All-Ireland Senior Boxing title in the, in the National Stadium in Dublin when he was 18 years old. He was on track to go to the Olympics in Montreal. Two days later, he was taken by his dad to Bleary Darts Club to show off his medal to... And John Michael's friends. And Jimmy went outside to the toilet. And whilst he was outside, gunmen burst open the door and shot dead his father and two other men where he had been sitting. Jimmy was able to describe to the police the colour of the trousers the gunman was wearing by the only available light, which was the muzzle flash of the gun which was killing his father. And I say, you know, that was the light by which he saw for the rest of his days. What light could be darker? Jimmy ended up becoming an alcoholic and took his own life, died by suicide in 2007. So in that sense, and I think one of the other chapters ends stating that other relatives of victims took their own lives in the last couple of years. So that's a pattern throughout the North. The troubles are over, but the, you know, Lyra McKee, who tragically um, was murdered by dissident Republicans in Derry a few years ago, before she died, she wrote a very powerful essay about the, the ceasefire babies and about the, the rate of suicides in the North post, post-conflict. post Like, more people have died by suicide 
since the since the ceasefires than died of violence during the Troubles. That's a pretty telling statistic. On a more positive note, the primary school where the historian Fitzpatrick that I mentioned, the primary school that I went to in Lawrencetown, it's now a community centre serving not just Lawrencetown, but also Tullalish and Lenaderg, which are two more predominantly Protestant um, villages. So it in itself represents a, you know, it's a kind of a, a metaphor for the community coming together in a, in a, in a more positive way. It's very interesting. Some of the you know, the horrendous deaths that you talk about, in some instances, not all, in some instances, you do see the two communities coming together around these individuals because these, because their lives were so enmeshed. And it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't like a peace wall in Belfast, you know. People were in each other's lives and people were Absolutely, shocked people like, from the other side. And um, just to go back to a point you were asking earlier on about kind of having, you know, it's not just about, you know, Catholics getting murdered by loyalist paramilitaries side by side. You know, there's like four days before the O'Dowds were murdered on New Year's Eve 1975, three Protestants were blown up and killed in an INLA pub, uh, explosion in a pub in Guildford. And one of the victims was Richard Beatty. And I interviewed his son, um, who is the same name, Richard as well. And, you know, he went out of his way to say that, you know, there was no bitterness in, in his family. And, you know, you think they'd almost gone out of the way. He says he and his siblings had as many Catholic friends as Protestant. So, you know, wherever possible, and I, you know, I, without inventing anything, you know, I kind of document the positives, the, you know, the, the fabric where, you know, people from other, from each side work together. Like I, I also, on the same day that I interviewed Richard Beatty, I also interviewed Robert Harrison, whose father, Bobby, was an RUC reservist in Guildford when he was shot dead. Um, a year after the O'Dowds and Barney O'Dowd and Bobby Harrison. Politically, you know, they were on opposite sides of the fence, but they would have friendly arguments. They would, you know, they respected each other. And you went looking as well for the for the families of those, those British soldiers you mentioned, the three I British soldiers indeed, who were yeah, killed, in, yeah, uh, killed in, that, that, in that house. Yes, I got as far as, you know, tracking down a brother and sister of one of the victims to Orkney, where, where he was from. And I spoke to the head of the local British Legion who had known him, who knew the families. And he was sort of acting as an intermediary on my behalf. And I got as far as kind of, you know, Googling to see how I would get from, from Dublin to, to Orkney, like did Ryanair fly to Aberdeen and so forth. In the end, unfortunately, and but understandably, the the family decided they didn't want to kind of go there. And that, and that happened two or three times. Did it? I was going to ask you that. Yeah, did some people yeah. just not want to do it? Yeah, yeah. like the first, yeah. the first um, victim from my parish was Joe Fagan. He was a lorry driver um, from the Clare, which is the kind of another little townland. And he was one of eight victims or of eight people who died in a premature IRA bomb explosion at Newry Customs Post, which Simon Carswell wrote a big piece about at the time of the, you know, the discussions about the the dangers posed by the return of a hard border. Mm. So I, you know, I knew, like, I went, I started school less than a fortnight after Joe Fagan was killed. Um, his daughter, Mary, was in my class. His son, Kieran, the eldest, was, um, like, uh, was in my sister's class the year above me. So I approached uh, through a mutual friend, Joe's widow, and I, I knew his brother and uh, through our shared membership of the Manchester City Supporters Club. Um, and Very important. Absolutely. 
Um, and, you know, it was too painful for them to speak about. Yeah. And I completely understand that. Um, there's no way I wanted to harass anybody. I only wanted to speak to people who wanted to share, share their stories. In the end, Simon Carswell, my colleague, introduced me to Mary Casey, um, whose father was the other lorry driver who was murdered in that um, bomb explosion. So I was able to kind of, you know, find a different way to tell the story. Likewise, when I was telling the the story of the three British soldiers who were killed, so I wasn't able to interview their relatives, but I was able to sort of trace back, and that's when I discovered that the the house in which um, the bomb had had been planted had belonged to a man who had been interned, a local man called yeah, Sean Moore. Tell me about tell us about that because that's a story that travels down the generations after that as well, isn't it? It's yeah. So Sean Moore is a local man from Guildford who married into a Republican family in in Lurgan and became an active Republican himself. Um, he was interned and he was badly beaten in Ballykinler um, Army Camp internment camp. He actually sued the British Ministry of Defence and the RUC for his ill treatment and won remarkably. And the judge in that case was Rory Conaghan, a Catholic. He was also, by coincidence, the judge who awarded um, compensation to Christine Fagan, Joe Fagan's widow, which another judge then reduced significantly on appeal. And what happened to the first judge? The first judge, Roy Conaghan, was three years later shot dead in front of his own child. Mm. Um, Who you've talked to as well, who's quoted in the book as well. Actually, his daughter was interviewed by another colleague, Roisin Ingle. Um, She now lives in Dublin, and so she was outraged when um, Martin McGuinness was running for for president um, of the Republic a few years back. And went on, on the record So for these the first chain time. connections, are they, they bring us right down to the present day. And so, for example, the the, the man who was lifted and, and interned and, and abused, yes. he escapes over the border. He went on. He was actually um, helped escape over the border by uh, the novelist Owen McNamee's father, who was his solicitor, who, you know, helped successfully um, win his case. Mm. And his two sons, so he went on to be, uh, you know, a... Uh, right-hand man of Rory O'Brody, I believe. Um, I know all of this because an Austrian academic at the University of Galway, Dieter Reinisch, uh, interviewed him and shared with me his deposition um, from the court case. So and he worked for Rory O'Brody, who was Republican, Republican Sinn Féin, Republican Sinn Féin yeah. in other words, uh, you know, yeah. the, 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 the splinter yeah. from, from, from the provisionals and then down, yes. down nearly to this very day, his sons were... Taking a similar line? Two of his sons were were involved in dissident politics. So absolutely it passes it passes down through the generation. You know, it's not in the book because like I had to cut it from 150,000 to 120,000 to, you know, put a shape on it. But, you know, there's stuff about Sean Moore going to this ankles of Eden Tubber, photographs of him at the Wolf Tone um, commemorations um, in Kildare, but also at Eden Tubber, which is the place where the IRA blew them, uh, a number of IRA people blew themselves up in the 56 to 62 um, border campaign, which is almost like an echo of what happened at the customs post just a mile or two down the road in 1972, which cost Joe Fagan and seven other people their lives. So absolutely, history repeats itself all the time. I want to take a, a quick break. We'll be back after this. So, Martin, we were talking about the way that history travels down through various lines, reverberates, knocks off everybody. One of the things the book does, I think, really powerfully is it puts you back in the time. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a somewhat different time in, in, in many ways. One 
thing is, there's, there's very little understanding of what trauma and grief actually means. So the 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 relatives, the people who are left after this, are very roughly treated. Sometimes it it seems they're deliberately roughly treated by security forces. Terrible story of the woman being forced to go in and try and identify the the, the man who might be the the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and actually touch him on the shoulder yes, as well. That's it's kind that's, of shocking that's stuff. That's Robin you know? Jackson, the jackal's first yeah. victim. Um, Margaret Campbell, Pat Campbell, the shop steward's widow. Um, she was incredibly, you know, insensitively treated, and as a consequence, you know, she became very distressed and left left the room, and then had to go back in again. And then senior RUC officers used, you know, the failures of their own procedures in terms of conducting a proper ID parade to say that the evidence could be challenged in court and therefore the prosecution of Robin Jackson could not be proceeded with. They didn't even tell the family. The family only found out from the evening news that Jackson, who had been charged with um, Pat Campbell's murder, had been let go. And of course, he went on to become the greatest serial killer of, of the Troubles. And as you recount, there have been investigation after investigation in the decades since Jackson died, what, more than 35 years ago or more or more or something? He died like. just after the Good Friday Agreement. So oh, sorry, about 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there had been, you know, all these inquiries, we remember, over the course of the years, the stalkers and, and all these people. You know, and we all know, we all know how those ended. Yeah. Um, like there's a, a, this sort of strange experience writing the book that, you know, I'm, I'm writing about history in, in one sense. And yet in another sense, you know, between me interviewing Donna Barry, um, Pat Campbell's uh, daughter, and the, the book appearing or the first draft appearing, they had settled out of court. Uh, they were prosecuting the British Ministry of Defence and the RUC, or sorry, the PSNI, as is now the successor of the RUC, for allegations of of um, collusion in terms of that Jackson, that they had failed to investigate properly because there were these very strong allegations that Jackson um, was actually, if not an agent, an informer, or somehow being protected by the security forces. Like five days before um, Pat Campbell was shot, a man had been arrested. There'd been a massive arms raid on a UDR base in Portadown, and in the subsequent follow-up searches to try and, you know, retrieve all the weapons that had been stolen, that had pretty much walked out of the place, a farmer, a man was arrested on a farm. He named Robin Jackson, who was a serving UDR soldier at the time. He named him, his brother-in-law and another man as the people who had forced him to store the weapons that had been found. And yet he wasn't arrested. Five days later, he murdered Pat Campbell. And then, as we've already discussed, the ID parade was conducted in such a way that it became possible to say that the widow's identification um, of her husband's killer, that he, had, that who, who she had opened the door to, um, was was going to be inadmissible or could be challenged successfully in court. Um, there are patterns here, pa- it's, patterns it's, that repeat. It's an era that's defined obviously by brutality and violence, but also by incredible murkiness. You know, it's there's so many forces that are pushing forces under the you know under the surface. So, as you say, these questions of collusion and people speaking out of one side of their mouths and then speaking out of the other. But there's also 
something which I think people have forgotten over the years, which is raw sectarianism. And you kind of, you, you touch on that as well. So that while you do have very often on an individual level, these very good relationships between people from other, either sides of the sectarian divide, you also have somebody like Ian Paisley, who is now viewed through a kind of a, a softer lens because of what happened with the Chuckle Brothers and Martin McGuinness yes. and all that much, much later. But he's going around there in the late 1960s describing Catholics as vermin. Yes, um, Eamon Kearns, whose who's two sons uh, were murdered in 1993 that we spoke about earlier, he and his wife Sheila were um, went on the first uh, civil rights march from Cool Island to Dungannon, I think, and he speaks about you know, Paisley and his followers um, shouting abuse um, whilst Jerry Fitt and Austin Curry were, were speaking on the platform about injustices and so forth. He also speaks about Paisley coming to a local Orange Hall uh, near the Catholic Church in, in the Clare in Blairy and, you know, his vitriolic abuse and that kind of, in the words of Eamon Kearns, kind of poisoned um, the attitude of many local Protestants towards their Catholic neighbours. You know, e- even me going through the, the newspaper archives, the Lurgan Mail, the Bambridge Chronicle, you know, I came across around the time of the the first referendum on Britain leaving, whether Britain should leave the EEC the as it was in the common market yeah. in 1975. And, you know, the blatant sectarianism of the DUP's advertising saying that basically, you know, we all know that home rule was Rome rule, but according to um, Paisley, Brussels was also a form of Rome rule that the... Yeah, he continued that rhetoric right into the 1980s and in the European Parliament and the 1990s and everything, know, didn't he? Yeah. It's just mm. incredibly bizarre or whatever. Like, And I'd, you know, I don't think, you know, I think a lot of people have forgotten that or, you know, they don't realise that that was, you know, possibly and, and, and a factor. What, well, clearly that did speak to willing ears to some cases in his in his constituency in the and among Protestants. I mean I mean what's your experience of for example, you went to a um, a, a grammar school, which in the Northern Ireland construction of the sectarian educational divide was essentially a Protestant school. So what was your experience of that a little bit later? I suppose that's in the early 80s. Yeah, so let's see, um, 60, I was born in 67, so I think it was 78 to 85. I was at Bambridge Academy, which was the closest grammar school. There are Catholic grammar schools. The nearest ones would have been in Newry, which was more of a war zone and much further away. Um, so Would it have my, been unusual for your parents to decide to send you there? Not really, because my cousins, uh, I think four of my cousins had already gone there. Other people from the village had gone there. You know, the funny thing is that, you know, maybe that's one of the, another reason why the book is called Dirty Linen, because that's about sort of, you know, talking out of school or, you know, you know, talking in public about stuff that maybe you shouldn't talk about in public. Mm. So, you know, I never told my parents about the kind of sectarian abuse that I was experiencing day in, day out at the academy. I didn't tell teachers either. I kind of think the teachers should have been aware of it, though. Like, you know, Northern Ireland was, you know, riddled with sectarianism and discrimination. So why did they think that it wasn't happening in the in the, in the classroom or in the playground? I had an interesting conversation. I have an interesting conversation in the book with my former history teacher, David Griffin, in which we kind of discussed this and kind of come to a greater understanding. But, you know, I was fascinating, actually, because, you know, David told me that, you know, whatever about in the playground, he was aware that there was sectarianism in the staff room. You know, he 
he told me about, you know, watching two teachers discussing, you know, who would be prefect and one leaning over the other's shoulder and telling him he's picking too many Catholics and the other teacher turning back and saying, you couldn't pick your own nose. So, like, that's kind of grim. Um, I interviewed a woman, uh, a neighbour in Lawrencetown called Paula Jordan, who for decades has been principal of a special needs school in Dungannon. She was appointed OBE last year. She even attended the Queen's funeral. You know, this is somebody who is a pillar of society, who's obviously very well regarded and respected. And yet her career as a special needs teacher was almost sabotaged at birth. When she applied to become a special needs, to get onto a, a course to study special needs teaching, she got turned down. She got no offers, even though she had better grades than other people who were getting a place. She was able to find out what happened because she had a cousin who was a teacher who knew somebody at the Catholic Teacher Training College in Belfast who looked at her file and told her that the headmaster's report um, from Bambridge Academy had described her as a, a troublemaker and a truant and therefore, you know, uh, he didn't recommend that she get a place. And so she had to repeat her A-levels, not to improve her grades, but to get an honest reference from a Catholic headmaster or school principal. And so that to me is shocking. One of the most shocking aspects of it is the fact that he had, he had written a letter to her personally thanking her for volunteering in the local special needs school in Bambridge where his own child was a pupil. So that's the kind of thing that was going on and hopefully isn't going on now, is it? I think, you know, obviously, I think that the school improved hugely. Even in my time in the last year, um, that headmaster left and was replaced by Winston Breen, who I think was an excellent headmaster and um, went out of his way to um, support not just Catholic pupils, but also pupils from a working class background. Like David Griffin tells me that he actually dug into the the stats and identified that pupils at this middle, largely middle class grammar school who had come from a working class background were underachieving. And it took them maybe two generations to, you know, to get the grades or whatever that their middle class peers were getting and, you know, set out to rectify that. Hmm. Sadly, he, he died very young. Even more sadly, his brother, Harry Breen, was a senior RUC man to be murdered in the Troubles. He was one of the two officers, you know, who were killed coming back from Dundalk Garda Station, which led to another inquiry. And he was... Winston Breen was totally anti-sectarian and he changed the whole outlook of the school. And, you know, he's after there was some sectarian incident and he addressed the whole school assembly and warned of the consequences if he that he absolutely would not tolerate sectarian abuse in his school. So there's like an example of, of what leadership can do. And that leadership was sadly lacking in most of the time that I was at the school. There are interesting ambiguities in the book and your own personal story as well. I mean, you talked about being, I mean, you regard yourself as a working class person who got a middle class education and therefore, for good or ill, became middle class. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't think that. I'm not sure. What do you think? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't tend to put a class label on no, myself. Okay, I'm fine, from, but I, it is a subject you know, that comes up in the book. So it is something yeah, you're conscious I'm, of. I'm, uh, I'm comfortable talking about it. Um, I'm but, from, then, yeah. but then you add to that that you're also an emigre. 
you know, you left you left to go to university yeah. in Scotland. Then you worked for years in in newspapers like yeah. the Irish Post mm-hmm. in London. Yeah, and then you came to Dublin, and you've been with the Irish Times now for uh, for a good long while. Yeah, um, and the the role of the or the position of the emigre is always a bit strange, isn't it? There's a little bit of guilt there, a little bit of relief as well. I mean, emigration has always been a uh, a live option for people in in a, in a place yeah, such as this. Like definitely, I was at university in Saint Andrews when my cousin came over for a ball and told me that Pat Feeney, um, a neighbour from my village, from my old housing estate, had been shot dead in in a linen mill in Donnacloney. Yeah, and I hadn't even picked it up on the news. Like I would say, I sort of. You know, I read the the papers cover to cover, the British papers every day. Like I was, you know, I'd say probably obsessed with with the conflict. You could still miss things because you didn't have a phone with all the news in it. You didn't have direct contact. Absolutely, and and, and also there was so little coverage in the British papers of you know what was going in the north. Um, Like it is one of the things that you know it's it's a point I made in in the article that I wrote in the Irish Times on Saturday. Three people died in my in my parish in the Guildford pub bombing. Um, and yet, if you Google Guildford, G-I-L-F-O-R-D, if you Google Guildford pub bombing, it redirects you to the Guildford pub bombing in, England. Yeah. in Surrey. Not the Guildford Forum. So, yeah. like, just think, like, three people lose their lives and the, the algorithm effectively erases them from history. Mm-hmm. It's as if it never happened. Um, and that is the kind of experience when you move away from the north to Britain, you know, the troubles disappears over the horizon. It has to be something massive and horrific for it to even register. What about from Dublin? Like, I moved to Dublin in 2006. So, you know, the, the conflict was over, if you like. Um, I think there is limited interest in the North. Like, my, my dad is from, is from Gorey County, Wexford. I've got family in Wexford. I've got family in, in Galway. Um, so I know, like, I, 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 you know, I cross the border all the time when I was growing up. And so, you know, I spoke to, you know, my southern relatives and, you know, they were quite frank. You know, they would say, you know, my uncle in Galway would sort of say, like, you know, people down here just really aren't interested anymore. And I, to a degree, I understood that because, like, you know, the the horrors of, of the of the violence. Um, you can understand what people would say, let's extremely, just put this behind us. I can. Yeah. And yet, funnily enough, my Uncle George and Gorey, you know, he told me a different story. He said that, you know, the there's active IRA organisation in County Wexford. And true enough, when I was editor of the Irish Post in London, I interviewed Ted Barrington, who was from Gorey, my father's hometown. And, you know, he had a very positive picture to paint of the Irish in Britain and so forth. And, you know, his heroes were Parnell and O'Connell. And yet, I think within a year, um, a young man from Gorey, Ed Byrne, I think his name was, died, blew himself up in a in an IRA bombing in London. So, you know, it wasn't as if the, the South was completely cut off from involvement in violence or, or taking sides. And when, when you look back at this now, um, or, and, and indeed write this book about this subject now, you History changes as it recedes into the into the rearview mirror. It gets reinterpreted and then reinterpreted again. You know, so you have things like, for example, recent opinion polls show that I think something like seventy seventy five percent of people from a nationalist Catholic background now believe that the the provisional IRA campaign was justified, and that was not the case while the events which you describe were going on. So. 
as I say, as these things kind of recede into the distance, people start interpreting them and understanding them differently. I think, like, you know, my children are 19, 22, 24. So, like, the troubles, the modern troubles are history for them, just as the War of Independence is history. And there, you know, there is the risk of kind of, you know, from that perspective of of conflating the two. I wonder, you know, do people maybe kind of look at it and see... There was a civil rights movement which was violently um, beaten off the streets by mm. the RUC in Derry and Burntollet and, you know, loyalists were, were, you know, allowed to, you know, to violently attack, you know, peaceful protesters. And then you had things like internment, which was very much a crude weapon used against only one community that was, you know, involved in violence, whereas, you know, Protestants got a pass. Like I mentioned in the book, the guy, Barney McGuigan, who wrote The Men Behind the Wire was interned. And yet people like Robin Jackson, a serial killer, was not. So I can kind of think, you know, people looking back at that history and looking at Bloody Sunday and the Ballymurphy Massacre or whatever, they might well get a perception that this was a legitimate campaign or whatever against violence and all the rest of it. And I think what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of home in and show the realities of um, what the IRA campaign of violence actually actually involved. Like, I, I deliberately kind of segue from my sectarian, my experience of discrimination and sectarianism at Bambridge Academy to a chapter about um, a bomb in Bambridge in 1982 in which an 11-year-old pupil, you know, could have been me, was waiting for a lift home in a jeweller shop in on the high street in Bambridge. My mum had a shop on the same high street. I often, you know, waited there to get a lift home if I had games after school or whatever. So my point is, if discrimination is bad, indiscriminate bombings are even worse. No warning bombings. I interviewed a woman, Margaret Yemen, who was blinded in the same bomb. Um, there was a woman downstairs in a shop below her um, who was grievously maimed. Um, I think lost a leg, possibly lost an eye. And her name was Doyle. And I remember my mum says a woman came into the shop the next day and said to her, oh my God, Marie, I thought it was you. And I kind of think like these are this, these things happen day in day out. I like Margaret Yeaman was painted by Colin Davidson as part of his series Silent Testimony, which is I think one of the most powerful artistic responses to the violence. Basically, Colin painted in Margaret's case a victim, and most of the other cases a relative of people who were murdered in the troubles. And these are very emotional um, works of art. One of Margaret's best friends is uh, Jennifer McNairn, who lost her legs in the Abercorn bombing in Belfast in 1972, which inspired, if that is the word, a Bambridge sculptor, um, Effie McWilliam, to do another of the most famous artistic responses to the Troubles, which is the Women of Belfast series. So that was a connection between the two. The other connection, obviously, their friendship. So, and there, there is a sense in the book, I, I think, and I think it may even be articulated by one of the people you interview, is that the the divide here is not between Republican and Loyalist, or Catholic and Protestant. It's between 
the victims and their relatives on the one hand, and and very and the people who refuse violence on I the one hand, yeah. and and the perpetrator. I think it's actually um, my own line. I say, like for me, the greatest divide is between those who practice or endorse violence and those who suffer it or have to endure it. Mm. How hopeful are you for the future of the place that you describe? You know, um, I'm disappointed that we haven't moved moved on more. Um, you know, I think uh, there is a younger generation that wants nothing to, you know, to do with the, the bigotries of the past. I think, you know, sectarianism is in decline, but it is still, you know, it is still alive, but I think it is less of a factor. I think Brexit was a disaster. I think it, you know, it made people much more conscious of borders and identities and so forth. Whereas, you know, when Britain and Ireland were both members of the European Union, that was like a kind of an umbrella under which, you know, we could all we could all live. And, you know, the Good Friday Agreement um, stipulated that anyone born in the six counties of Northern Ireland could be either Irish or British or both. And I think... Brexit has been incredibly antagonistic. I personally think it's a massive own goal for, for unionism because Northern Ireland isn't working. Like, again, looking for metaphors, Loch Ness, it's a sort of stagnant mess um, in the middle of the North. And it seems that the North has stagnated uh, since Brexit because, you know, the DUP pushed for the hardest possible Brexit, which was against the wishes of... Um, you know, the majority of the people in the North who who did not vote for Brexit. Um, they're refusing to um, enter government with Sinn Féin. Is it because they're unhappy with the protocol? Is it because they don't want, they don't want a Catholic as First Minister? They don't want to serve under a Sinner? Um, the jury's out. Who really knows, you know, there, what, the, what their motivation there is? is. There, there has been a suggestion that one I agree with, but it's one we've discussed in this podcast with, with people who know more about this than I do, which is that... The uh, what some people say as a gradual and perhaps inexorable approach towards creating some form of unified state on the island will lead to a resurgence of internecine conflict in Northern Ireland. I don't necessarily accept that myself, but you can see how that might come to pass. I mean, those those impulses are are definitely still there. You know, well, you know, it's obvious that say, you know, loyalist paramilitaries, you know, have not gone away. Um, they're not in, involved in, you know, waging war on Catholic civilians or Catholic neighbours, but, you know, they're they're still there. They're still sort of making ominous noises around the protocol and so forth. I would obviously hope that um, democracy would prevail and if there was a majority um, in the North that voted in a referendum for a reunification, that that would be accepted on all sides, in the same way that, you know, the IRA stopped its campaign of violence, which obviously I don't think they should ever have started, but they stopped it on the understanding that there was a peaceful path towards reunification. So we're in very dangerous waters if um, it becomes apparent that actually there is no peaceful path towards reunification because even if people vote for it at the ballot box, there is a violent minority who do not respect um, democratic norms and will not accept the verdict of the people. Dirty Linen is published by the Merrion Press. It's going to be launched um, at 6.30 this evening in Hodges Figgis Bookshop by, by Ardell O'Hanlon. Tell us why it's being launched by Ardell. 
So Ardell and I uh, have known each other for, for quite a few years. I guess when, when Father Ted first came on the scene, I I interviewed Ardell at the at the first uh, the first press. Uh, well, I know for launch. a fact your main your your proudest moment is you were an extra in Father Ted. Thanks. It was actually I was talking to to Ardell earlier on, just going through plans for tomorrow night, and he he wanted to fact check whether I was in fact um, my cameo role was Father Martin Doyle, and I had to. Mm break it to him or remind him that tragically I was an extra, not a cameo because I didn't actually have, have a name. Um, so it was funny. That, that was, is unfortunate. That is unfortunate um, because one of the, the side effects of that is that you don't get repeat royalties. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's funny, I was at a, at a show in The Mermaid recently um, where Joe Rooney, who was Father Demo, in a classic episode of Father Ted, and I thought I was the one that was milking... Um, my 15 seconds of fame in Father Ted most successfully, but... Um, he's, he's done. He's done. He's a, got a whole stage yeah, show out of it. Fair play. <laughs> yeah, fair play. absolutely. And of course, Ardell's family just feature. He's a man of the border himself, border country himself. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So the man who there was a, used to be an RIC station in Lawrencetown, which was burned down. It had been abandoned, but um, it was burned down by a local IRA unit led by a man called Seamus Monaghan from Banbridge who ended up, um, there was an, a, a mob attacked his family shop in Scarborough Street in Banbridge and he ended up shooting a local Protestant who was in the crowd or when this was happening, fatally shooting him. And so he narrowly survived um, a murder trial, whatever. He was um, given a short sentence. Um, he ended up moving moving south and he served alongside Ardell's grandfather. So Ardell's father is Rory O'Hanlon, the former Fianna Fáil minister from Monaghan. And in fact, one of Seamus Monaghan's referees on his military service pension application um, was Rory, Rory's father. And so later in life, Seamus Monaghan had cancer and he was getting treated in the matter in Dublin. And Rory was a houseman at the time. Um, and they used to sort of meet and reminisce and Rory shared some of the, the stories that Seamus had told him about cycling to Dublin from Banbridge, which is no mean feat in itself. And at one time he saw a Union Jack, a woolen Union Jack flag in Dublin, which he shinned up and pulled down and used as a blanket in his digs while he was learning Irish. So it was fascinating to, you know, to find these kind of connections. Um, it was actually um, the late uh, historian Eamon Phoenix who had told me that if I wanted to talk to somebody about Seamus Monaghan, the man to talk to uh, was Rory O'Hanlon because they'd had a conversation about it previously. In fact, it's one of the, the tragedies um, while writing this book, Eamon Phoenix tragically died because he was a fascinating figure as well as, you know, a historian who was able to tell the history of the North in a, in a way that like he used to bring busloads of, of loyalists down to Dublin and they'd stop at the Boyne and pay their respects and then come down to Dublin and he'd show them around Kilmainham Jail and so forth. He'd take them up to the top of Liberty Hall and they would be able to, to gaze northwards and see the Mourns uh, to see Northern Ireland um, from a southern perspective. 
Eamon was a brilliant historian of Northern nationalism, but he was also he had very close roots on both in both sides of the community in, in my in my parish. So I was able to talk to him about the macro and the micro. He was able to show me his grandfather's war medal. His, his one of his grandfathers was killed in the First World War, serving in the British Army, and he was able to show me a Presbyterian um, his. Presbyterian great-grandfather who had been a school teacher in my parish and he had a a Bible in Irish with his name in Irish and Eamon said that he used to go back and give talks in Tullalish and met descendants of some Presbyterian descendants of some of his great-grandfather's former pupils who were able to say yes we had Irish in, in our family so it's those little details that I think are like glimmers of light or whatever are evidence that, you know, it, you know, the old binaries can be transcended. Those are the riches, if you like, of that give me hope. On that note of optimism, we'll leave it there. Martin Doyle, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, you. That's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, John Casey. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.